You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We are often on guard about many things. We are on guard, if we're parents, in relation to our children. We want to protect them. We want to care for them. We want them to play inside the fence, don't we? We want to protect them from potential predators. We want to make sure that they are cared for as they should be cared for. Just yesterday, I got an email asking for a reference for a dear friend, a best friend that I've known for 30 years because he was going to be working in an organization that worked for children and they want to guard the children. And so they had questions. How long have you known this person? Do you trust this person? And My response was, thanks be to God, I trust this person without hesitation, which is what they wanted to hear. But they were on guard weren't they? Doing due diligence as they should. Sometimes we're on guard about more trivial things, like our favorite sports team. Don't cross me when it comes to my team, man. Don't criticize my people. (laughs) We can see that the the value of the different sorts of persons or, or things we give our energy to guarding is not always the same level of value. Though it's not always obvious by the effort we give to guarding those things, is it? We guard our political loyalties. We guard our community. We guard the reputation of our community, don't we? And we guard our homes with alarm systems and security and so many kinds of things. And so we engage in guarding different things, property, and persons in almost every venue of our lives. Do we not? We really do. This is pervasive. It happens all the time. And being on guard requires a couple of different postures from time to time, doesn't it? Sometimes it requires a defensive posture. And sometimes it requires an offensive posture. Sometimes, as they say, the best defense is a good offense, or is it the other way around? One way or the other. There are a couple of postures we can take. We can create security to defend ourselves and our belongings and our loved ones, or we can take a more aggressive posture for the same purposes. But it's a slightly different posture. In 2 John, the church is invited to be on guard in an area that we are often on guard in. John wants to invite the church to be on guard in relation to the gospel, in relation to the truth, in relation, he says in verse 8, to what we have worked for. Be on guard in relation to the mission of the church. And sometimes when we come to the gospel, when we come to ministry, when we come to our beliefs, when we come to these, these, these deep realities that we hold so dear, we go back to the other ways in which we're on guard and we take those postures. Remember what they were? Anybody? 
defense and offense, right? Defending or aggress- aggressiveness. And we take those postures and, and we bring them into church. I'm going to defend the church. I'm going to defend what I believe. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to have a good argument. The problem is, and I'm all for good arguments, you all know that. Problem is, a good argument isn't always the best way to defend or even persuade. There are people who can hear the best arguments in the world and not be persuaded of them. And so, we should ask whether there's another posture. If we're going to be on guard, we want to guard the truth and guard the gospel and guard the mission. If that's the exhortation that we get in 2 John verse 8, be on your guard so that you do not lose what you have worked for. If that's the posture, does John also give us, if that's the, the goal, is there a posture that John gives us for doing that well and doing it faithfully? How do we guard what Christ has offered us well. And certainly we want to guard it. We don't want to just toss away what the Lord has entrusted to us. But what's the posture? And as I was reading through 2 John, I noticed that a word comes up several times. And it's a word that's common in the other documents, in the the other letters of John. 1 John, this came up sometimes Several times in our, in, our, in our study of 1 John, it also comes up in the Gospel of John. And it's a word that shows up three times in the second letter of John, and it's the word abide. That's not always the first posture that comes to mind for us when we're thinking about guarding something, is it? You insult my people. <laughs> you threaten my kids. Abiding isn't really the first posture or concept that comes to mind, is it? And yet John says, be on your guard so that you don't lose what we have worked for. And then in the following verse, verse 9, twice he insists on the cruciality of abiding in Jesus. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ but goes beyond it does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so for John, if he's going to talk about what it means for the church to be on guard, he explains that in the next verse in terms of abiding in Jesus. John wants us to discover the same Reality that he wanted his first century readers, listeners to discover. And that's the simple reality that we cannot guard the truth without abiding in Christ. It's a fundamental posture. We can't guard the mission. We can't guard the truth. We can't guard the gospel. We can't guard what we have worked for unless we are singularly focused on Jesus and abiding in Him. Now, 
When we talk about guarding the truth, one question arises immediately given our cultural situation. What is truth? Because if you listen to the many voices that are out there, it's this person has their truth and that group has their truth and if there's truth at all, it's just subjective. Yours is yours, mine is mine, and I'm going to do my thing and you do your thing. And our temptation in that is one of those two initial postures, isn't it? We either defend, oh, these are my truths, and I'm going to put some walls around them, and I'm going to protect them from you and your errors. That's one posture, isn't it? Or we go on the attack. Here's why you're wrong. That sound familiar? And yet John says, if you want to guard what we've worked for, if you want to guard what's been offered to us, then those postures may not be the most useful. Instead of taking that sort of defensive or aggressive posture, and that's not to say we should never again craft arguments and write books and do all those kinds of things, but it is to say that the primary posture is Verse 9, abiding in both the Father and the Son. So when I want to protect what the Lord has given me, when I want to be on guard, the posture is a posture focused on Jesus. I want to get this right. It's not, here's what I want to say. It's, here's who I belong to. Because for John, truth isn't just a thing out there somewhere on its own. Truth is Jesus. Truth is a person. Truth has a human face. And any claims we want to make, any propositions we want to make, their truthness depends on their relationship to Jesus. All truth goes back to Him. All truth comes from Him. Even if we find something true in a different context and Jesus doesn't appear to be around, brothers and sisters, He's the source. <laughs> Even if it's hard to trace it back. Truth is Jesus. And our posture, if we want to step into the world and, and we're going to get hammered with all kinds of voices. We've talked before about how many people are vying for our attention and here's a claim and here's an ad and here's an argument and here's all of these voices after voice after voice after voice vying for our attention and inundating us with so much conflicting messaging. It's impossible to mount arguments against all of it. It's impossible to take that, that, that defensive or aggressive posture. John wants the church to know what you need to do in that instance is bring yourself to Jesus. And in bringing yourself to Jesus, to the one who is truth, you will find yourself, if you're abiding in Him, if you are focused on being 
in deep communion with the Lord, you will find yourself able to hear His voice above the other many voices, and you will find yourself able to discern truth and falsity amidst the sea of conflicting messaging. Not by taking them one by one, and there's a time for that. Again, we don't want to overstate things here. But we never get that right if we are not abiding in Jesus. And this, I'll say you friends, like this is a like this hits me where it hurts. Because I live my life <laughs> in the middle of theological conflict. I'm always seeing somebody's written something and somebody said this and maybe I need to write something and there's a book in there somewhere and maybe there's an article or here's a podcast interview or whatever, like all of these things and it can be absolutely exhausting and endless. And sometimes that temptation to give all the energy to other things is very potent, it's is a very real thing. And I think, I hope, I, I pray that the Lord Jesus can say in those moments, you don't have to write that article today. At least not until you come back to me. Because at the end of the day, it's not about your voice, it's about mine, Jesus said. Not about what you have to say, witty arguments or bottom lines or catchphrases or turns of speech. It's not about what we have to say. It's about who Jesus is and what he desires to do through his church. So if we're going to guard what's been given to us, the posture is not can't believe that person on the internet is wrong. Let me correct them. Anybody been there? Because <laughs> everybody's wrong on the internet, right? Instead of that posture, because who's ever persuaded on Facebook anyway, or whatever your platform is? What if I come back to Jesus and offer myself to him first? Will that prepare me even better to engage with wisdom in the public square? I think it will. Guarding the truth with, there's no guarding the truth without abiding in Christ. The image Jesus gives in the Gospel of John, which is obviously related to 2 John, is the image of the vine and the branches, isn't it? Jesus says, like, if you want to bear fruit, you have to do what? You have to remain in me. You've got a vine. The vine has branches coming off of it. They only have life because they're attached to what? The main stalk, the main branch, the main vine. And that image is so helpful. I mean, we're all familiar with it. It's made its way around the church for a very long time. And sometimes when things are frequent, we tend to sort of just, oh, I know what that means, I've heard that before, but I wonder if we could pause to reflect, am I, in my busyness with all the voices, with all the media, with all of the other things that could distract me, I wonder if I'm 
in tune with Jesus now. Thoroughly. So Jesus says, if you want to bear fruit, abiding in me is the crucial posture. Now we run into a term here that we've seen in 1 John. And it's one of those lightning rod terms, isn't it? You know what I'm getting ready to talk about. <laughs> Anybody want to call it? This is the Antichrist language, right? And again, we typically associate Antichrist language with which book of the Bible? And how many times does that word show up in Revelation? Somebody's been paying attention for the last six weeks. Good. Where does the Antichrist language show up in the Bible? Only in 1 John and now 2 John. And once again, we are not presented with like the end times boogeyman, are we? We are presented with someone who is pursuing false messiahs. We had more information in 1 John. Uh, it looks like a group of people has just broken away from this church that John is writing to. It's not clear whether 2 John and 1 John are written to the same church or whether they're written to different churches in a similar area. That's one theory. But in either case, John assumes that his recipients know what he means and he fills in the picture a little bit about this is about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and whether He has come. And if Jesus is the Messiah and if He has come, then anyone else who claims to be the Messiah, right, political, revolutionary leaders, those folks can't be the Messiah because Jesus is. But He has ascended to the Father and He's not immediately present for us to follow and give our allegiance to. And we haven't seen Him in a couple of years. Decades perhaps. And Simon Bargiora is over there and they're like, He's getting a following and we've got to get... Let's go check it out. And so it looks like a group of folks has departed. They no longer are followers of Jesus as the Messiah. They do not affirm that He is the Christ, which means Messiah, and that He has come. John says, anyone who says that is the deceiver, and anyone who says that is Antichrist. Note, that means there could be lots of them. All right, so again, it's not, John doesn't portray this Antichrist figure as one, like, end times, Jesus-hating boogeyman. He basically says, Anyone who doesn't confess that Jesus Messiah has come fits in the category. So we want to take the language with the evidence the Scripture gives us. Those, for John, are folks who are not abiding in the Messiah, in Jesus, in Christ. And so he goes on, and this is the context. They're, they're sort of a, an argumentative foil for him. They are the negative illustration of the one who is not abiding. The deceiver, the antichrist, however many of them there are, anyone who's broken off and chased after false messiahs is part of this antichrist party. And he says, be on your guard, right? Because they are people who were in your fellowship last week. And when people who were in your fellowship last week give up and walk out and pursue someone else, you might be tempted to do what? 
go with them. Because they're your cousins and your friends and you've worshipped with them for decades. And you might be tempted to follow. And John says, be on your guard so that you do not lose what we have gained and maintained. Be on your guard. And that looks like abiding in Jesus. Folks who've left the community are liable to the warning at the beginning of verse 9. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ but goes beyond it does not have God. Whoever does abide in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We can't guard the truth without abiding in Christ. Now, sometimes our attempts at guarding truth go very, very badly. A couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I saw on my feed uh, a comment, a tweet from a friend of mine from seminary. He and I have wound up in very different places, with very different sort of presuppositions, but we're still friends. Believe it or not, you can be friends with people you disagree with. It's true. And he said something about kind of our doctrine of Scripture and how off-putting some things about it are. Uh, he, he particularly criticized a word that is sometimes used to talk about the truthfulness of Scripture, the word was inerrancy. And that word has a lot of baggage, and I get that. And I replied to him, this is one of those times where I didn't resist the temptation to tell somebody on the internet they were wrong. Don't follow my example. I said, you know, some of us believe the Bible is true and we're not grumpy about it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we had a real, I mean, the reality is it was... It, it was a substantive, healthy interaction because, again, this guy and me, we don't agree on lots of things, but we're friends, and we have been since grad school. And we've expressed how much we appreciate just the thoughtful disagreement over really some hot-button kinds of things. And so we went on for a while, and occasionally, you know, Social media is other people will jump in and things get a little hairy sometimes. But my point is this. Pick the issue. Like We talk a lot about the trustworthiness of the Bible. I don't always understand the ways in which the Bible is true, but if God speaks to us and God is true, then His Word is true. And sometimes when people try to disprove the Bible or declare that our belief in the Bible, the, the trustworthiness of Scripture is like a fairy tale, we tend to take one of those two postures that we talked about at the beginning, don't we? Don't you talk about my Bible that way! We get defensive, and we get aggressive, and we go after people. And the question for me is, does that commend Jesus? Does my aggression commend Jesus? And so I tried really hard in that interaction to be substantive, but not grumpy. Is it possible to hold on to the truth and not be angry about it? <laughs> At least sinfully angry about it. 
Is it possible to just say, what a delight it is that God, the eternal Creator, who is infinite in glory and power and majesty and holiness and love, has condescended to speak to us. Don't you feel good when you're in a room of crowded people and someone sees you across the way and goes out of their way to cross the room to speak to you? Don't you doesn't that make you feel good? Amen? You can talk. It's okay. <laughs> like it makes me feel good if I walk into a room and maybe I'm new and I don't know a lot of people, but, one of, but somebody's over there. Maybe they don't even know me and they're like, hey, I saw you and Welcome. Like when people find us and address us, we feel dignified. We feel worthy. We feel fully human. And when people ignore us, we feel less than human, don't we? Brothers and sisters, the one who made all things and sustains all things has come across the cosmos to address us. Let's not be grumpy about that. If we are abiding in Christ and our identity is not taken from our propositions, we are far more likely to be able to hold on to the truth with a smile on our faces. And we are reminded in Scripture that it is the kindness of God that draws people to Him. So the next time you are on guard and you are tempted to be combative, what would it look like to take a posture of abiding? What would that feel like the next time the culture wars crop up? Again, let me be clear, I'm not saying forsake the truth. I'm not saying don't hold on to your convictions. It's, we're not talking about the truth itself. We're talking about our posture in relation to reality. And if I go through life just angry about the truth, my guess is, that's not necessarily going to be the most effective form of ministry. We went to the Auburn game last night, and we're walking towards the stadium, and uh, there's some guys doing some street preaching, and uh, we had a little conversation in our family about the effectiveness of the method, because I only heard two or three sentences, and it was basically, you're all a bunch of sinners, the wrath of God is coming, and you're on your way to you know where. Or maybe you don't, and that's why we're out here talking about it. And I think about myself as a preacher, and I think, you know, if you only heard two sentences of this whole sermon with no context, like, that could go very badly. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a, a pretty, pretty lengthy context to this speech, and if you get a soundbite of it, chances are it's going to be misrepresented. And so, you know, if I walk up to you, or you're walking by me on the sidewalk, and and, 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 and I'm just like, hey, you dirty sinner, you know, you know what's coming. And that's the only thing I hear. Then that contextless declaration seems to me like it's just 
waiting to be misrepresented. Can I find a way to tell the truth without sounding grumpy about it? And we discuss in our family whether or not in that moment something about God's love for sinners. Remember, it's the kindness of God that draws people, we're told in Scripture. Something about, yeah, it's not to say we're going soft on sin, it's not to say that we're, we're neglecting that or brushing it under the rug, but it is to say that the gospel isn't simply while we were yet sinners. The gospel is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a message of judgment without the message of redemption is not the full gospel. So again, when we speak, when we preach, are we taking a fundamentally defensive or aggressive posture? That chap seemed to be taking a rather aggressive posture. Or are we focused on abiding in the vine that is Jesus and through that deep abiding relationship, drawing the world to him. John gives us two ways we can mess this up, two ways we can fail to guard the truth. So we've been talking a lot about kind of our posture. Let's talk a little bit about, we've talked about our posture towards others. Let's talk about kind of strategy in terms of how we relate to what Jesus actually says. Verse 9, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ but goes beyond it does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so he sort of gives us the teaching of Jesus. Here's what Jesus, you know, you've got the, you've got the Gospels, you've got Jesus' teaching, that's the place where we live. Am I offering myself to Jesus? Am I reading the Gospels? Am I reading the Scripture? Am I hearing from the Lord? Am I worshiping? Am I responding? To, am I obeying Jesus? And let me be careful about two potential dangers. Number one, I can just neglect Him. When was the last time I read through the Gospel of Mark? And if I don't remember... Chances are, <laughs> I'm not abiding. When was the last time I dug into the instructions, the teachings, the commandments of Jesus and said, what does this look like in my life, in my family, in my church? And if I'm neglecting that, I can't be abiding in it. So if we don't ever make use of the fact that God has dignified us by addressing us, if we don't come to the Scriptures to hear from Him and gather with the church to discern as a community His voice, we're not abiding. That's a dangerous place to be. You've got folks who have extracted themselves from the community. John says, you can't attend to the teachings of Christ if you've extracted yourself from the community, if you have extracted yourself from the Word, from Christ, and from, from the way that you know Him and know Him deeply. The other way we can mess this up is by taking what Jesus said, and John says, going beyond it. So we can say, well, I know Jesus said that, but He didn't say enough. 
tell you uh, how we can get this done the right way. I know Jesus said that, but, you know, let's add some expectations. This is where legalism language comes in a lot. You may say you're following Jesus, but if you don't follow Jesus my way, well... It hasn't fared well for us in history. Adding to the words of Christ. Creating extra expectations. I mean, Jesus' expectations are bad enough. Amen? <laughs> Love your enemies? I mean, have you tried that lately? But if we can add some things, if we can create some parameters, if I can give you an ABC, here's what it looks like. Don't do this. Don't do that. If you don't do that, if you do that, you're not loving Jesus. And sometimes there are things, and that's true again. This isn't just relativism. But the question is, are we trying to be in control or are we abiding? Abiding is primarily about Jesus being in charge. And calling the shots. And anytime we try to take that to ourselves, chances are we are going beyond what he has said. So John says, don't neglect what he offers and don't go beyond what he offers. If we're talking about guarding the truth, guarding the mission, guarding what we maintain... John also wants us to see this as a shared responsibility. This is a document sent to a church. The elder to the elect lady, most of the scholars think that's a way of talking about a church in a community. And he addresses all those who know the truth. He talks about the group as us. This is an ecclesial context. This is a church context. Sometimes when we talk about abiding in Christ, we really make that a matter of individualism, don't we? Am I abiding in Christ? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I having daily personal worship? And all that's important and good and crucial, and yes, we should be. But it's not even close to all. Abiding in Christ only happens in the context of of the believing community. John has the church in view. After all, some people have departed. And he's again working to maintain those who remain and encouraging them, you as a community, abide. One of the things that came up at our, our gathering in Tennessee this weekend that kind of landed with me was like, we're really good at being all in for Jesus as individuals. It's a lot harder to do it as a hundred people together. So-and-so's in. That person's really committed. This person's in deep. But what would it look like for the whole church to be on fire for the Lord, abiding in Him, singularly focused on Jesus together? You think the tone would change? You think the impact would be multiplied? You think the fruitfulness would be profound if we were committed together to be singularly devoted to Jesus? 
If we came together to pray, if we came together to seek the Lord, and if that gathering was the priority, and if we only think of our own abiding in relationship to the congregation abiding, does that sort of shift the dynamic a little bit? A lot. And will the Holy Spirit show up and do something surprising when the people of God gather as a single body, to use one scriptural metaphor, with Christ as the head? All through the Bible, again and again, we don't get solo believers. We get people who are in Christ, and Christ is the head of a body, and that body is the church. And if you want to abide, if you want to be connected to Jesus, it only comes in the context of His church. The church for which He gave His life. The church which He redeems. The church which He has made His bride. The church which He loves more than life itself. You want to abide in Christ? Love the church. You want to abide in Christ? Love the church. It's hard to love the church sometimes. I'm a pastor, I know. (laughs) There have been times where I've thought about hanging it up. You know what brings me back? Jesus loved the church enough to shed his blood. And if he can love the church with all of its messes, maybe he can love the church through me. If he can love the church with all of its messes, he can love the church through you. Dig in deep. That's what it looks like to abide. That's the posture John gives us. Not a fence it off and protect it. A lot of churches take that posture. We're not going to let the world in here. Let's give ourselves to Jesus and see what he does through us for the life of this world. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.